Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hi everyone, Peter Crosby here from the Digital Shelf Institute. There is no destination in commerce, only the journey. So the key is to get continuously better at the steps of that journey. Lindsay Sweels, CEO of Social Bee, an international digital marketing and e-commerce agency based out of the UK, spends every day working with brands to get the fundamentals of digital commerce success right, with a sharp eye on winning share of shelf. Lindsay shared her experiences and processes for building brand personality, nailing SEO, and making the product page meet the consumer where she is. So Lindsay, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. We're super excited to have you. Thank you, Peter. It's lovely to be here and lovely to um, to meet you today. You know, you uh, you know, look at the work that you do with Social B. You you work with brands across the globe. I know I know your your agency is based in the UK, but but you work with people across the globe, including a lot of Google's largest customers as a official Google partner trainer, and and so uh, you know these are such insane days in, in digital marketing and in e-commerce and commerce writ large and the need to develop strategies. So all of that work is so important. And so tell us what, you know, as you work with all of these brands, what's top of mind for them uh, as you connect with them and sort of hear what, what the from twos are of where they feel like they are and where they want to get, like, what do you see going on out there? Um, well, as I'm sure you can imagine, Peter, there are lots of challenges for organizations right now. And we work with um, FMCG brands and B2B and B2C organizations across the globe. Because we're talking about digital shelf today, I want to just focus on um, FMCG brands and the things that are keeping them up at night at the moment um, from me speaking to them and having worked with them for the last couple of years, including you know, COVID has been very much growing category and share of the digital shelf and also how to remain relevant and grow their business in what is a very disruptive space that is happening right now. Yeah, I'd love to check in with you a little bit, you know, just as we as we record this, and I think certainly when we publish it, there's just so much upheaval going on in the world right now. We're seeing e-commerce numbers you know, come back to maybe more natural growth rates than the pandemic, but that's nonetheless an adjustment for, for the kind of environment you've been guiding them through to date. You, we have wars and inflation and supply chain issues. And, I, and I'm wondering when you talk about growing category and share in that context, are you seeing shifts even more recently in terms of how people are thinking about their strategy? How much of that is rising to the surface in your conversations? Um, lots and all of that is rising to the top of conversation um, with the organizations we're upskilling and working with. Um, there's lots of things that are outside of their control, which sadly you've touched on, Peter. Um, mm-hmm. And also the consumer, you know, consumer is at the front and center of this. And we're trying to predict, like, where's the consumer going to go next? And with lots of the data that's been released this year, you know, obviously COVID meant people had to purchase online whether they wanted to or not. And so the FMCG brands and the manufacturers had to sell online and they had to get their head around that. And now when things have opened up in certain countries, 
humans like you and me have gone, actually, I can go to the shops. Well, actually, I don't want to go to the shops, but it's a novelty factor now. So I want to go to the shops. And so we've seen the figures, this roller coaster ride a little bit. But as you've said, Peter, it will, I think, naturally like balance itself out. And we that doesn't mean that e-commerce and the digital shelf has gone away. It absolutely has not. <laughs> um, but so it's thinking about as an organization, how they can prioritize those areas, how they can react and how they can be agile. Like agility in many of these organizations isn't a word that generally familiar with because you know they are large global organizations and being agile in that space just doesn't naturally tend to go together I don't think does it Peter (laughs) I have perhaps heard of that concept (laughs) yes you know it's turning ships is always a big challenge Uh, but what I've what I've started to see and, and Lauren you can chime in here is a lot more of the silo breaking than we saw two or three years ago. I think, you know, as you started talking about kind of in-store coming back the and, and, um, and digital shelf and the consumer, when you put all those things together, you really have to uh, present similar stories, content, content and, uh, and interactions across all the touch points that a consumer might choose to interact with. And I think on both sides of the aisle, if you will, they're seeing that. And there's probably more than one aisle, if you think about it, uh, brand marketing and supply chain, they're all thinking about how do we make this work in the, you know, choose your term, omni-channel, multi-channel, all-channel environment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've hit the nail on the head, Peter. You know, we many organizations do silo it, but it doesn't matter where the consumer buys as long as they buy from you guys as long as they buy from your brand so how can we make that as painless as possible for that person and how can we be available online offline and create that unified journey because it is now more fragmented than ever before and I think it's interesting when you talk about agility when the word agility became a buzzword in e-commerce it was like okay everyone needs to be agile and everybody tried to take the same exact approach they were like we need to do sprints and we need to do this quickly and we need to change our structure and I think we've finally gotten to a place where people understand that agile is different for each organization and they're starting to create teams. They're starting to create strategies that work for their definition of a big company. And they're kind of finding their way and experimenting a bit, which I think is a good place to be at rather than, Hey, let's take this cookie cutter agile approach to to how we should be working within the e-commerce space. Now let's, figure out how it works for us and and what that means for our consumer and getting a little bit more specific and personalized, which hopefully COVID has helped to explain to people and, and really kind of demonstrate. Um, but, but along those lines, Lindsay, as we're kind of talking about that, with the ebb and flow and the change and everything that's happening in the world, what are some of the areas that brands should be focusing on? Uh, what have you seen to be helpful, some key themes there? Um, so some key themes I've seen, um, Lauren, uh, there's a number I want to share with you today that I'm seeing consistently with especially like the large brands um, trying to be agile in this non cookie space that is uh, there is no set playbook. Um, first of all is brand personality. Now we'll talk about probably more of that later because the people that are chipping away at the big brands are the smaller brands and we'll talk about those later but having a brand personality many of the big brands have been around for, for you know millions of years, um, and they're really sold off the back of their buying from a brand, buying from a trusted brand, but they have in the nicest way, they have no personality. It's a brand, it's a trusted brand. And they've used that in terms of, you know, their buying power and people recognize that brand. 
but it's getting a bit dull. And so brand personality and having a personality and, and having a tone of voice and having a, a reason to buy um, is something that is really important, I think, from the consumer um, aspect. But linked to that is knowing your competitors. So linked to the first point is your competitors are different. You know, again, linking back to the many of the biggest brands in the world, um, they will normally be looking at the other biggest brands in the world. But it's not just those brands that they need to be competing against now. Many of the smallest brands, and I'll give you some examples um, in a couple of minutes, Lauren, are actually the brands that are taking some of the market share didn't even exist back in, you know, mid 2000s. They've popped up um, from, you know, people's kitchens, from, you know, people's garages and are taking market share and are really disrupting that space. So the competitors are different. Um, and also another challenge I'm seeing or and have seen over the last um, 12 to 24 months and still now is um, they are still, you know, some brands are still in this traditional um, retailer uh, prioritization. So although they know that e-commerce is really important, it's what they do in that space. So if I speak to any retailer, sorry, if I, if I speak to any FMCG brand and say, you know, what's important to you from a from a physical store, they'll say, we go and do walkthroughs every week because we want to know like what's at the end of the aisle, where our product is, you know, what the availability of the aisle. And then I say, okay, well, how often do you do that in a, in a virtual format? And they're like, oh, we, we go and have a look at the product. Yeah, but take your brand hat off for a minute, put your consumer hat on, go and do some searches, like say you were looking for, for chili powder or say you were looking for dairy-free cheese. Do you show up? Who else is there? So putting the importance of doing the digital walkthroughs to actually see how you um, appear because as as you guys said in terms of the overarching agility challenge there isn't a cookie cutter approach and the same when it comes to retailers you know no retailer works the same so if you want to be on that digital shelf you need to do that digital walkthrough to see how you appear not just that your product is there and Lindsay, can I dig into that a little bit because I, I think that you know we've always part of the reason why we've kind of focused on the term digital shelf is that I do think there are deep practices, as you said, built up over, I don't know, about millions of years, <laughs> a lot of years, <laughs> to, to optimize that experience for consumers and also for share and, and, uh, and success. And so the digital shelf is a way of sort of going, are we putting that, that same level of energy into the digital shelf? And so when you think of digital walkthroughs, how do you, what's the process that you set up for them to sort of do that? And, and what are the takeaways? Do you find that they do take away sort of byproduct walkthrough or are there overarching kind of uh, best practices they can develop just by looking at their own, their own dog food, so to speak, depending on the um, dog food, sweets, whatever they're selling. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, it's a really good question, Peter. I think it, um, it depends on who I'm working with. But I think the first, um, the first thing I get them to do and the thing I always talk about as soon as I'm working with a brand is take your brand hat off because you will know your product. You will know where it is. You know, you know where it appears and how it appears. But just take your brand hat off for a moment. And this is sort of getting them to think like a consumer. And I say, right, okay, go and have a look at Asda or go and have a look at Walmart and do a search for a product that you last purchased. And it could be chili powder, dog food, gluten-free pasta or something. Um, and do you appear? So I just get them to, to, to walk through at that stage. And it's just to basically open their eyes to go, oh my God, we're not there. Or, oh, we are there. Yeah, cool, sweet. Okay. Well, okay. How about if I'm looking for inspiration so the first stage I go through is basically just walking them through for them to go 
we're here, we're not there. Or Are you even showing up? <laughs> are we even showing up? And I've done this with some big brands and they've gone, this is a joke, isn't it? We're not there. And I'm like, no, this is a real store. And if you're not there, then you're not there. <laughs> because it's, you know, many of the leaders within these organizations have been there for many years and, and you know, they're not digital native and there's nothing wrong with that. They come with oodles of experience, but just getting yes, them to, to basically level set the playing field and just show them in a very non-technical way with a consumer hat on what that looks like is a, yeah, it's, is a it's good It's demystifying start. the algorithm essentially like the whole thing is just powered by by an algorithm that yeah. doesn't really care yeah <laughs> you know, uh it, it just takes the data right yeah and it's such a different concept because like once it's on the internet it's on the internet right like that's not that, that's not a, a way that we used to think about things like you would need to get competitor data wait for benchmarks to come out so it's a it's a different way of thinking where you're like i can see a window into my competitors pdp their reviews what people think about them so i love that mind shift that you have the opportunity to see what's out there so that you can compare or contrast yeah yeah, absolutely. So first of all, it's like open up their eyes and, and saying, look, have a look. And then it's OK, so how can we make the difference there and, and how can you be there organically rather than paid as an example? And as you know, if it's the, the leadership team, it's then helping them to prioritize how to help their implementation team because their implementation team, their e-commerce team, subject to what organization it is, they'll be called different things. But they'll often know what to do, but they won't necessarily know the prioritization based on profit or the bigger the bigger picture stuff so it's it's yeah sort of helping them join the dots from from that perspective um to then help the leadership team maybe help them prioritize what questions to ask the implementation team or when the implementation team need to feed up to the key stakeholders on like this is the insight we're seeing or this is the opportunity we're seeing or this is where there's a big missed opportunity or these are the budgets we need and so you you um uh so you have the the kind of the search level, but then you were talking about going to that next level of consumer question, you know, when they're trying to actually get intelligence maybe around the product or essentially the product page experience. Is that where you were headed next with them? Yes, absolutely. And just, um, you know, COVID has really highlighted to brands that they need to get their products online. And if you're talking about, um, you know, supermarkets, again, you're at the, the, um, you're up, you're relying on the supermarket to actually list your product. I've worked with some retailers where, you know, they're in every store in the country, but then look online and their products aren't available. So they're like, I didn't know they didn't sell our product online. We need to sort that out. So it's thinking about from a consumer perspective, just because you sell your product in store doesn't mean it's going to be available online. And if they have put it online, have they just cut and pasted what's on your product jar or on your packaging and put that online? Well, how useful is that in PDP listings? not very helpful at all and that then links us into you know some of the other questions we're probably going to go through later in terms of enhancing those listings i'm curious do you have examples you had said that you had some specific examples that might be helpful to kind of illustrate maybe some of the uh, areas that brands need to focus on would love to hear those yeah so um just to bring to life this example of like um brands that are doing really well in this space the one that i often use with big brands and small brands is source shop um source shop was founded in 2014 um it's a couple um james and pamela who were shared a passion for sources now you know there's some of the biggest retailers in the world selling sources from you know heinz to mccormick to campbell to del monte you know they're the source big the big guys as it were um but source shop um had a passion for 
you know, flavor, more flavorsome, more maybe high-end sauces. And so in 2014, from their kitchen, they started creating sauces. From their kitchen, they went to selling um, in markets. And now they've got 34 chefs. They are selling in the likes of Sainsbury's, Co-op, Whole Foods, Amazon. Um, last year, I spotted that they did an exclusive product with Amazon. You could only get it on Amazon. They're bottling thousands of products a week and selling thousands of products a week. They've even now, I just spotted today, they've now done a bespoke uh, sauce for the band The Folds. So in terms of disruptive, they're not only taking market share that... Um, you know, from a from an Amazon perspective, but they're in the retail stores, which, you know, if I am one of those big brands, be it Heinz or McCormick, I would have probably been looking at the equivalent. But actually, the brands that could never get in the supermarkets before through this disruption of social media, through this disruption of now selling on Amazon, obviously, you know, Sainsbury's and Whole Foods are looking at this brand and going, hang on, if they're in demand on Amazon, I want them in my store. So actually, it's, you know, these digital native brands are not only disrupting the digital space, they're disrupting the bricks and mortar space as well and taking more of that market share. And, um, and I think that really speaks to omni-channel or whatever, whatever word you decide to, yeah. to, to talk about that, right? It, it's not about just selling on e-commerce and being successful there because to your point before, it's... Now we can go back to stores. Now we can think about that. And now we've swayed away from just looking at straight e-commerce and we're looking at the kind of holistic commerce picture. So I, I love that example because it really illustrates it, it very well. Yeah, yeah. And just um, to add to that example, Lauren, um, you know, brands are, big brands are looking at that type of thing. And a good example of that is Vegetarian Butcher. You know, Vegetarian Butcher was a privately owned brand. Um, Unilever purchased it and they purchased it very strategically for a few reasons. One is first party data because uh, they don't have any. Uh, Unilever didn't have any because they weren't selling direct to consumer. Second of all is the great brand personality. If if you guys haven't heard of Vegetarian Butcher, I'd highly go and recommend you have a look at it because they have great brand personality. And second of all, the whole, you know, vegan vegetarian market. You know, if you look at the PR side of things on Vegetarian Butcher, they've done innovations with the likes of Burger King. Um, and so they're really disrupting that market to gain market share gain insights, gain first party data and grow their business in strategic other ways from not just their traditional brands. So when you're this idea of brand personality, because I, I was hearing what you were saying, which is that sort of the traditional idea of brand, the trust, the loyalty, the the ubiquitous nature of it in in the main TV market. So the commercials that you saw and and on the shelves, like there was a sort of an ownership based on geography or reach that, uh, that, that help brands sort of build that presence with consumers. It feels to me like brand personality is really something different or additive to that. And I'm wondering how, when you're talking to a new customer about, you need to get a brand personality, like how do you lay that out to them? What does that process look like? Because that's it's not easy. Uh, you can't just turn a switch. So what's the development of that? I mean, obviously in a short podcast, <laughs> you can't tell me the whole thing, but you know, what is the essence that gets them willing to take that journey with you? Um, yeah. Brand personality isn't a two minute job. It almost like rewinds to actually who is your consumer. So these digital native brands like Source Shop have come from a place of they they saw a gap in the market they couldn't they weren't buying a source that they wanted so they created their own source which is a bit extreme but they they identified a gap in the market and a thing that wasn't being created for them and so it comes from a very personal place of a consumer like who is our consumer 
And because it came from a very personal place of James and Pamela, their pain point, they could bring it to life with their personal brand personality and understanding the wants and needs of their consumer. If we're now looking at it from a big, a big business perspective, obviously they trade off their, their, their big names and you know there's many great names out there that are very successful, but they don't have brand personality. And for them to get to brand personality, they the, the place they need to start is actually who is their consumer. Now, this isn't who is their consumer demographic. Let's just look at myself, you know, female, married, 42, one child, lives in country, um, has a dog, yet we want to sell to her. Actually, what are her wants and needs? What are her passions? And then how can we reverse engineer that to create a brand personality that she goes, that's me, or, you know, I really like that brand. And, you know, I like a cheeky brand type thing. So it's almost... You have to know your consumer and many FMCG brands haven't traditionally sold direct to consumer because they have relied on the bricks and mortar or this Amazon of this world. And so they don't really know who their who their consumers are, which is a big gap for them that they have to try and try and close. And that's where social media and other data insights and market research and stuff can really help. And that's a big gap that I've been working with many organizations on over the last 12 to 24 months and, and ongoing as well. So when you've gone through that process with them and then you start to think about how will the consumer sort of discover that personality uh, and, and connect to it, one of the big channels that matter now is the product detail page, is their experience at the, you know, at, on the digital shelf that they choose to engage with. And so when you kind of leave that realm of brand personality and here's sort of the bigger picture thing we should talk about, when you kind of walk them through the PDP and and how do we make this come alive for the consumer? What are the things that you focus on? Um, The first thing is SEO, search engine optimization, because although the digital shelf is now bigger than ever, you know, I could buy anything from anywhere if I wanted to that isn't available in my local store. Um, So SEO is really important because if someone knows what they want, call it, you know, chili powder or something, then that's that's quite an easy SEO element, but something that needs to be done and isn't always done when a, when a brand's got thousands of SKUs. But linked to that, again, just taking your brand hat off and putting your consumer hat on a moment, you know, once we have done a search, whether it be something quite specific like chili powder or whether it be something as broad as uh, rain wear, you know, rain, rainproof wear for my child, then what do we do next? Often we flick to the images. And a thing here that I often share with brands is it's about taking the product and the experience that someone has in a physical store and taking that into a virtual one. So the images, the text, the video, the reviews, they're all things, tangible things that as a consumer, we can, you know, we can we can use that information to find or we can look at that image to go, yeah, that's what I that's what I'm looking for. And it's not, you know, images about the front of the product and the back of the product. Obviously, that's really important. But but what are the barriers that that product can help overcome? Because we might not read the text when we get to a product listing. We might want to look at the image and, you know, it's got the bullet points on it, for example, but also a video of that product of how it looks and feels. Um, And also the reviews, like how many of us read a review um, as well before we do things. So it's all of those things that make up um, an amazing product description page, which does take a lot of work. And that's where brands are going, oh my goodness, how are we going to update all these PDPs, you know, it is a, a, a large amount of um, heavy lifting. Um, and also the categories, because again, you know, how many of us are gluten-free? How many of us are vegan? How many of us are gluten intolerant? You know, you need to make sure that those terms, again, are in your product description and also inspiration. Like if I'm thinking about, you know, I want inspiration about, 
you know, uh, a winter stew or if I'm thinking about, you know, sending my child to forest, forest school, which I'll come on to as a good example in a minute. You know, it's not necessarily product led. It's sometimes inspiration led from that aspect. So if people are very drawn to a product and they know what they want, that's great. But think about the earlier on in that journey. If someone's looking for inspiration, then how can your product description page um, whether it be direct on a retailer or Amazon or on, you know, direct on your own website, how can that, how can that be found? Um, and there's two examples I'd like to give you guys here. One is from um, a skincare brand I worked with and the, just the importance of reviews. Um, they had this amazing skincare product. Um, obviously I won't delve into particular details, but they had this um, skincare product. It was, um, it was a sunscreen skincare product um, and I was upskilling them and I was looking at their products and their products were doing really, really well. Um, but they were I was upskilling them on them. And I found a product, one of their skin um, skincare products. Uh, it was their skin, their sunscreen product. And I was looking at the reviews and there was a consistent amount of good amount of reviews on this product where the term acne prone or combination skin was coming up. And they hadn't um, they didn't have any of this on their product listing. Um, and so I went away and did some SEO research. And just in the UK alone, I believe, um, sunscreen for acne prone skin is searched on over 480 times a month. Now, that's quite a specific term that people are searching on, which means they have high intent, means they're trying to solve a problem. And so I shared this not just with their e-commerce team, but with their R&D team. And this is important why it shouldn't just be the the product team or the e-commerce team or the leadership team are doing these walkthroughs. It should be, you know, your supply chain team to see how people are reviewing the product and saying the packaging is damaged or your R&D team and your legal team. Because when I showed the legal team and the R&D team these reviews, I said, what does this tell you? They're like, it tells us that actually we've got an opportunity here to, you know, take this product into a different area. Also, we can't just rename the description and say it's for acne prone skin because it's not tested on that. But actually, there's a big opportunity here. We should take this into that space, do an R&D test on it and actually say it can be done for acne prone skin and then relist it in that space as well. And hey, Plesto, you've got more of an opportunity. Um, so that's one example. The other example um, I want to share with you is a bit more of a personal one, but isn't food, but it's clothing and is really a good example, um, I believe. Um, I needed rain set for my son. He was moving from a nursery to a forest school. Um, we were in the height of lockdown, so I was just relying on the internet to decide what product to purchase. And if you do this, you know, wide search on waterproof rain gear for children, you get all of these products up. You can't touch it, feel it, so you don't know how hard wearing it is. A forest school is needs to be really hardcore gear there because <laughs> it's gonna you're gonna be getting holes in it in a few seconds if you send a child with you know cheap rubbish. Yeah. So I was having to carry out all this research um, and I ended up on this brand called Didriksons, which is a Swedish brand. Um, and their product description page was amazing because it really came to me from a, a consumer perspective. Instantly, it showed me how hard wearing it was. It instantly told me how waterproof it was and it instantly told me how um, how warm it was. So if I wanted to layer it up and the product description, the images, the video, it overcame all of my barriers from an SEO perspective and also from a actually touch it, feel it perspective. So it took the physical product into a digital world really, really well. And guess what? I purchased it. And guess what? I gave them a good review. And guess what? I purchased more. So it then links into that whole consumer journey and how that PDP can make a massive impact. So hopefully just a couple of those examples there just really bring to life how that can how it's so important from that aspect. Those are amazing examples. I mean, I. 
I love how you're talking about knowing the consumer. And I almost want to go a bit beyond that because when, when you say know the consumer, I think a lot of people think to your example, female, certain age group with a child lives in this area. It's almost like who is the human behind the click and like, what is their intention? Like, what are their needs? What are they thinking about? How do they feel about these products? And I think that's the kind of double click into who is your consumer that you have to think about. And, and I think it, it's challenging. And I'd love to hear your thoughts here, especially for people who are early on in the journey. They just want to get the content online. They just want the page to be set up. They just want to be present. But if taking the extra effort to really think about what are the needs that this product is trying to fill in for people can really give them a leg up. I'd love to hear your thoughts, especially for people who might be starting that journey. Yeah, absolutely, Laura. And I think it's also helpful for brands I've worked with recently. You know, they have a global team and they have a local team. And this is also really heightened for the global team that you can have an overarching global strategy, but you need to, you know, you do need some of the impact of the local people in your local market to understand those consumer needs. But you've highlighted the first one already, Laura, and it is, it's not focusing on what product you want to sell. It's focusing on actually the consumer needs. Um, And that's a big thing to get a brand's head around because if they don't know the consumer, how do they know what they need? So it is about taking that brand hat off and putting the consumer hat on. Now, I might not be the, you know, the brand that I work for. I might not be the consumer that a person wants to buy, but we have so much digital insight available to us now as a brand. You know, we can see, you know, we can have a look and see what people are talking about on social media. We can go into store and just listen (laughs) We can listen on um, on the digital channels. There are so much data insights. And many brands, however advanced or non-advanced they are, can, you know, might have carried out market research as well. So it's it's looking, looking at those two things, non-product centric being consumer centric and the wants and the needs. So that Didrikson's example of that rainware was a really good example because there were some questions there that I had in my head. Um, second of all is taking that brand hat off and putting that consumer hat on and always coming about it from a consumer centricity. And also it's then focusing on first party data, whether you sell directly or not. Um, And many of the brands I work with don't sell direct to consumer. Some of them are dabbling at the moment. And a good example of that, even if you're not selling direct to consumer, um, is Maybelline. Maybelline um, don't sell direct to consumer, but they didn't have any first party data and didn't want to sell direct to consumer either. So how they overcame understanding their consumer and first party data to guess what helped them understand what their consumers wanted and then how they could target them and how they could advertise them and how they could create products that their consumers wanted was what they created was QR codes on their products. So if and when I purchase one of their products, take a picture of the QR code as a loyalty scheme, it asks me a couple of questions. And guess what? Not only do you have first party data, which is good in a cookie-less world moving forward, but secondly, it's using that first party data for a reason to understand who is my consumer, what are the challenges they have, what are the skincare problems that they have, what products are they buying? Um, because many makeup brands, food brands, other brands will know that they're selling so much product, but they won't know what other product that, that person is buying and they won't know why they're buying that product. So if you don't know why they're buying that product, how can you market to that person? How can you create brand personality? How can you improve your PDPs? Um, so quite a lot to think about there in terms of um, in terms of the organization and also involving the whole company because, you know, supply chain need to be involved, R&D and just getting them, you know, brainstorming and, and, and all of that to, un- to understand what that what that journey might look like and being more consumer centric. Lindsay, uh, to, to close out here, because 
we've been talking about a lot. And earlier on, you mentioned people like, we have so many PB, PDPs, what do we do? You're sitting with a, with a client. You've sort of done this discovery work. There are all sorts of opportunities to improve. How do you help them get a sharp focus for the, you know, we call it the maturity curve, the digital shelf maturity curve, but for the journey ahead, like what are the, what are the ways in which you pull them together and build that here's where you should start and here's where you go from and, and what does success look like? Yeah. Okay. Um, again, a very good question. You're asking me lots of great questions today. Um, it depends where they are in the journey. Um, first of all, I'd say if you can get stuff, li- all, you know, all your products listed very easily, then do that to actually, you know, test and learn and see what works. So just get them on, maybe not obviously not PDP optimized, but just get them on in the sense that they are to see what's in demand. Um, but generally what you would then do is generally the 80, 20 rule applies. So bear in mind, then picking your power SKUs, um, your top SKUs, whatever you might like to call it. So bear in mind how you pick those is, you know, bearing in mind the store, the demand, the product size. And now I know um, Todd from Colgate Palmolive covered this in one of your recent podcasts and, and will have gone into much more detail on this. Um, but generally, I look at it in, in three ways. First of all is focus on your priority customers um, and the models. So build relationships where you can understand where some of them are playing with new initiatives. Uh, like today, I posted on LinkedIn that in the UK, Asda, um, who is, I believe, although they're a budget supermarket brand, they are the innovators in food retail, um, have been for many years. Um, they have now just launched with um, Buy Me, another app that allows you to get you know, food in you know, less than an hour. So focus on the priority customers models where there is the most traction, where you can have make that biggest difference. Second of all is prioritize the investment. Now, prioritizing that investment doesn't necessarily mean money. It can be time as well. Um, And then implement to win. So winning on that shelf in organic and paid, but not in all of your products. This is linking back to, you know, your top products that are in demand um, and going to, they might be, you know, even e-commerce exclusive products that that, that you then develop in time. But until you list all of your products in the first instance, you're not going to necessarily know what's in demand and what isn't, but then applying what Todd shared on um, the Colgate Palmolive podcast recently in terms of the power skews, then the power skews, then doing the the one, two, three approach, which I've just shared, but also keep an eye of what next, you know, e-commerce, you have a couple of days off and, you know, you come back and e-commerce has gone, you know, flying around the corner. You have to, have to keep an eye on what's around the corner, you know, voice probably being a very prominent one and that instant search um, and the the disruptors, you know, those ones in demand apps that are coming about thick and fast. Well, I mean, that's a, a great fundamental list of how to sort of work your way through this process over time. And, and I also, of course, appreciate the shout out to a previous episode. So just for our, our listeners, uh, yeah, the conversation with Todd from Colgate was was great. And, and I think we'll leave the, the link for that podcast episode in our in our show notes just so they can uh catch up on on that conversation as well but Lindsay, thank you so much uh, for for taking the time out to kind of walk us through your engagement with brands and and uh and to how to define a process that's going to continue to increase like you said it's the fundamentals of you know share of share of voice and category uh, growth on the digital shelf and then putting those um 
all of the omni-channel experience together. And it, it just, it's, it's a lot of work and I love the way that you described it. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been lovely to chat to you and Lauren today. And as, um, you know, as the saying goes, you can't eat an elephant in one mouthful. It's one bite at a time. And that approach definitely works here in terms of winning the digital shelf. Well, that image is going to stick with me for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> A pleasure. Thanks again to Lindsay for sharing your tales of digital shelf transformation in FMCG. To keep up on all things Digital Shelf Institute, swing over to digitalshelfinstitute.org to become a member. It's a big light blue button in the upper right-hand corner. In the meantime, thanks as always for being part of our community.